I love wine regions that are undeniably authentic and that always over-deliver. For me, that sums up Paso Robles. In fact, the first time I got on a plane in over a year and a half was to visit Paso back in April. Paso Robles sits in the heart of California's Central Coast. It's a big wine region that has many diverse microclimates, and it allows for a stunning array of grapes to thrive. In short, Paso Robles has range. They aren't known for just one or two varietals or wines. They make interesting blends from Cabernet Sauvignon and other Bordeaux varietals, Syrah and Rhone-style wines, Zinfandel, Tempranillo, and they even make beautiful white wines. Side note for you guys, my number one wine of 2020 was a Zinfandel Tempranillo blend from Paso Robles. Just saying. I also love that it's made up of over 200 family-owned wineries. We're talking salt-of-the-earth people who put their heart and soul into their wines. Paso Robles is special, but now the word's getting out. You need to check it out and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. You can learn more at PasoWine.com. That's P-A-S-O Wine.com. Are you looking for extraordinary new wines that have been tasted and approved by professionals with over 40 years combined experience? Then you have to check out 56DegreeWine.com. Joe Bimbry and his grand crew at the shop do all the heavy lifting for you by vetting every wine on their shelves. They scour the wine world, traveling often to France, Italy, Spain, California, all over the place, seeking out the absolute best values. And they keep that philosophy alive in selecting their artisan-made spirits and handcrafted microbrews. Whether you're looking for a baller, Barolo, and Burgundies for the cellar, or everyday drinking wines, they've got you covered. Even my favorite from Domain Bizcot is a staple there, so you know they have good taste. Follow them on Instagram, at 56wine, and go to their website, which is www.5656degreewine.com to browse the thoroughly curated selections. Use the code MJ when you check out to save 15% off your first order. That's 56degreewine.com. They try a lot of crappy wine, so you don't have to. Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey everybody, what's up? It's your boy MJ and welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is the founder and winemaker of Massacan Wines, Dan Petrosky. Dan was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, where he went on to play football at Columbia and that grinding ivy league uh, he went on to work for time inc while also studying for his mba at nyu both were ingredients for a promising future in magazine publishing he began his wine education literally by whining and dining clients around manhattan's best restaurants thank god for the expense account and after an attractive job opportunity from the wall street journal dan decided to make some big life and career changes he set off for sicily where he interned at for a year, and Dan originally intended to return to New York City to sell wine, but later received a harvest invitation in 2006 in Napa Valley. Uh, not long after that, 
he was hired as cellar master and ultimately claiming the Larkmead winemaker title in 2012. However, in 2009, Dan launched his own wine business called Massacan, Massacan, which specializes in Italian-inspired white wines. Massacan is a one-man operation where Dan manages the winemaking, sales, and marketing. Uh, his approach and ability to craft wines as diverse as Cabernet Sauvignon and Tokai Fuliano has earned him the recognition as San Francisco Chronicles Winemaker of the Year in 2017. Welcome, Dan. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, thank you, MJ. I'm super happy to be here. I'm so glad we can sit down and do this in person, man. Um, tell us about the wine we're drinking this evening. Oh, for sure. This is a long story. This could take up half the That's pot. okay. Um, so we are drinking uh, a 1992 Semillon from just outside of Rome. Uh, it's a wine called Fiorano. Um, it is a wine that's inspired a lot of controversy, a lot of mystery. But this prince who inherited this property uh, after World War II um, had all these old vines there, Malvasia, Semillon, some some Cabernet Semillon, some Sangiovese, some Merlot. And he would he was very much a recluse, and he made these wines in his cellar. I mean, it's a Lazio outside of Rome is not known for its wine production. It was back in the ancient Roman Empire, but uh, not today. And he just never sold the wine. Like he, he took money for the wines, but never shipped them out. It was really hard. <laughs> it was really hard for people to get a hold of them, to transact business with them. Uh, Eric Asimov did a great story on him about uh, a decade or so ago in the New York Times, and um, it also it also spurred uh, Abe Schoner, a friend of mine from California, winemaker, to to kind of name his wine the Prince in the Caves. And this wine, you know, if you were if you're looking at it, if, if we were on TV here, it's got well, this, we got we all the clips. They'll see. They'll yeah. see the color. Yeah, yeah. You got this beautiful amber color to it it's not uh, it's not an orange wine per se it's more of a sherry style it's a it's aged with the floor and these big vats um and it's really just you know the acidity of of semillon the kind of vibrancy of uh, of malvasia makes some really interesting complex wines so i just ran down locally here to flat iron wines which had it on their their shelf and i was like you got to be kidding me uh i got to bring this to mj because that's probably something he may not never have had. ever had didn't even know they made they grew simeon anywhere in italy yeah, and it's just a it's a fun, unique wine. It's you know it's a, one of those meditation wines where you yep. you don't you you think about it, talk about it, you smell it, you s sniff it, and swirl it in your mouth and in your glass, and uh, maybe eat a little food with it, a little you know crudo or some kind of fried fruits. But um, it's rare. It's, when you see these bottles around, it's always worth uh, worth the. Shot. I mean, I've n I don't think I've ever had. This is definitely the oldest white wine I've ever had from Italy, right? So this is like almost a thirty year old white wine from Italy, which just, well, and we'll get into it when we get into Mexican, but like Italy's typically known for their crisp, yep. young, just you want, they're just for quaffing and just for, you know, yep. the, the life. But this is very special. Thank you for bringing this. Oh, you're welcome. Thank um, you. So you had an interesting start to your wine career. Um, it was taking people out, but like, let's, let's go back. So you, you're from Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what part of Brooklyn did you grow up in, man? I grew up in a little park called Windsor Terrace, kind of, you know, near um, South Park Slope, um, Sunset Park area. It's uh, it's kind of a little hamlet there. Um, it's got the best bagels in, in New York City, in my opinion, in the whole five boroughs at Windsor at Terrace Bagels. Um and it's got you know it's got Farrell's Pub, <laughs> but it's got it, it got it had it had um you know it was a classic 
classic youth New York City film. You see it all the time. Row houses. We played every kind of ball there is with a single Spalding, you know, and, and it was stick ball, baseball, stoop ball, box ball, slap ball, you know, wiffle ball. Like we played it all. Like it was just like 60 row houses, a bunch of kids, you know, varying ages. And it was a really fun, you know, it was, it was a moment that, uh, that, uh, you know, I don't think we'll see much of again, in yeah. that kind of style of like growing up in the 80s in New York City. Yeah, very cool. So, and then you went on, you know, so you had your little, you know, it's great, but you know, you, how'd you find football? Because you, you played college, you played Division One college football. Yeah. Um, He's like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I didn't play organized. I wasn't allowed to play basketball when I was a kid because the coach thought I was too aggressive. Um, <laughs> I was too fat as a kid to play baseball and like run, you know, to run really well and, and get around the bases. Um, so it was just I, I was going into high school trying to figure out what to do next. Um, very kind of provincial in a sense of like my family. We were just you know. Small town, you know, blue collar Brooklyn family, and um, so I, I, I had the opportunity to go to Xavier in Manhattan, so in Chelsea here, and uh, they were Jesuit military school, which I wasn't interested in. I was like, oh, maybe I'll try the football team, and um, and I was able to do that and go play some football there. Um, had a great time um, with four years with some great kids from from Rockaways and Flatbush and in Manhattan, all kind of like bussing into Red Hook to to practice, and then back to the city, and then taking a train home back to Brooklyn, and that was it. Yeah, and then and then I got recruited. I mean, I didn't know, you know, Ivy League football was what was on Channel Thirteen, mm-hmm. like public television, right, right. at like eleven a.m. <laughs> on a Saturday. I was like, I'd rather be watching Abbott and Costello or something, some cartoons. Um, so I didn't really know what it was, and then I really. I, I chose Columbia because I was like, wow, I'm, I mean, I want to go work on Wall Street, you know, so I'm, what, they're going to hire someone from Manhattan, went to school in Manhattan. Yeah. I didn't know its pedigree. I mean, that's that wasn't my oh family. Oh my God, that's my awesome. Parents, my, parents, <laughs> my parents didn't go to college, so like, I had no idea. I was it like, was just like, if I go to college in Manhattan, <laughs> I'll get a job on Wall Street. And, you know. <laughs> I mean, senior year in high school, I took an economics class and I, you know, I fake bought, you know, some Berkshire Hathaway, you know, I, you know, is my, my stock portfolio. Um, but yeah, that was it. And, uh, but when I got to Columbia and it was just a whole new world, I was like, oh, wow, there's some really smart people in this world and they're only 18 years old. Yeah. So was, what was that like? I mean, cause you said you come from a blue collar family, first generation, first generation college educated. And then you're like. You know, there's generational people who go to Ivy League schools, right? Like, there's dumbasses who get to go because just, you know, I have a friend. I have a friend who, he's very smart, but, like, when his dad went to Yale, they actually had, he studied, like, equestrian studies. Like, they had, like, shit like that, right? Like, like they had weird stuff at these schools, you know, like, going and, way and back. And pizza. Right. You know? <laughs> but New, um, New Haven pizza. Oh, yeah. We'll get the New Haven pizza. But, um, so, like, what was that? Was that, I mean, you said it was a culture shock, but, like, what was, like, and what's it like moving away from home? Like, but you're not moving far, but it's, like, a whole different world, right? From Brooklyn oh. to... Upper Upper West Side of Manhattan. MJ, you nailed it. I was far enough to be away from home and not live at home, but also close enough to like go home and do my laundry. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was awesome, um, and not have to worry about being on a plane for Thanksgiving like a lot of my friends. Yeah, but uh, it was a culture shock. There was there was a lot of really smart people who wanted to be there for academic profile. I rejected it. Rejected that as uh, my first year as a freshman. I was put on academic probation for the football team because I was under 2.0. And I had to like hustle my studies to get 
my shit together. And, uh, and, and then it was just really hard. But I mean, I had to take, I, I didn't take any chemistry or any sciences in high school. So I, you know, didn't want to take chemistry like everybody else. And, um, so I had to wait and wait and wait to f- fulfill that, you know, and I ended up taking rocks for jocks and who knew, who knew I'd actually make wine one day and rocks mattered <laughs> and geology what, mattered. Wait, so they, that, is that, that's the nickname for the class? Yeah, that's <laughs> the nickname. Okay. That's that'd, the nickname. That'd be so cool if that was actually in the fucking <laughs> course catalog. It was for like, rocks for jocks, you boneheads. I, I, I I feel like my textbook was like it had pictures of dinosaurs. It was like cartoon drawings. I was like, it was just really, really strange. Um, but yeah, so it was, uh, it was, it was. But so, so I worked really hard, you know, because um, I was embarrassed uh, yeah. for for not doing well academically. And then I worked really hard, and I, you know, I feel like I feel like. I feel like Mickey Mantle, and I know this is a really weird comparison, but you know he 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 finished his lifetime career as like a two ninety nine batting average. I finished my academic career at like two point nine five GPA, and I wanted to get to three, you know. And then, uh, but I I'm I'm proud of my time there, and I'm proud of you know what I learned, and it taught me you know taught me to think. Yeah. So when you were at Columbia, you're an athlete, so I typically you you didn't work at all. Did you have any jobs while you're in school or? Oh no, I worked. Okay. Had, I had uh, I was on financial aid. My parents split when I was young, so we had uh, I had to, had to do work study. Okay. Um, we had a program. I stayed in the summers in Manhattan to work for Columbia University Housing. Columbia owns like they're the fifth largest landowner in Manhattan. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, same thing. Yale owns like sixty five or seventy percent of New Haven. Yeah. It's nuts. But but it actually it saves New Haven. New Haven would be a total shithole. New Haven would be Bridgeport if Yale weren't there. <laughs> so it's a catch twenty two. Largest employer in New Haven, you know, but but people don't understand. And they don't pay taxes. Yale doesn't pay, I don't and Columbia probably don't pay they don't pay taxes. Yeah. That's that's an, an, a thing too though. It's like the church. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. church in Manhattan mm-hmm. owns like the other they're one of the top five yeah. as well. So it's one of those weird things. See, we drop knowledge on this show for you people who yeah. don't know how the world really works. <laughs> So, so you have, you have to be a part of a church, and you have to go to an Ivy League school, yeah. not to pay taxes, and live in Manhattan. There you go. <laughs> Consequently, that's why I do not live in Manhattan. <laughs> I am neither. <laughs> Although I did go to college in New Haven, I'll just leave it at that. That's what I'll tell you, people. Where your mind goes. Um, so, so you said your your um, your family, your parents uh, split up when you're young. So there was never like a wine culture growing up or anything. Or was there? Well, there was, and but it was in the classic sense of uh, my father being a wino. Like you know, there was a terminology of being a wino was a you know a drop down wine drunk, someone who drank wine, and and it it slammed wine, beer, everything. It wasn't like a bureau. There was a wine. A drunk was a wino. So uh, that was the culture. Um, So we weren't really big drinkers. My my mom would buy a bottle of red wine every Saturday when she went shopping. Um, she would drink it on Monday, Monday to Friday when she got home from work, you know, big, huge goblet of red wine with ice cubes in it, um, stored it in the refrigerator so it's nice and cold. And then when I, you know, fast forward to the point when I told my mother and my brother I was um, going to move to Italy to pursue a wine career, they basically had to come to Jesus and said, you know, your father was an alcoholic. <laughs> and I was like, and it was, you know, wino was an alcoholic, right? And, like, and I was like, oh, no, this is different. <laughs> it has to do with rocks and, and stuff. And grapes, <laughs> grapes and rocks. <laughs> so they didn't realize that it was there was this kind of romanticness, you know, history around the wine industry that you know a very small group of us in this world really kind of yeah. um, play into. Yeah. So um, 
You graduate from Columbia, and then uh, did you go right to grad school? Did you go to work first? What did you do next after you graduated from Columbia? Um, I actually left town and moved to Detroit for uh, a summer, and then to Chicago. Uh, so I was in Detroit, Chicago for about 12, 10, 11, 12 months. Uh, worked for a consumer uh, marketing company, and I realized that there was, you know, I, I, I went to um, change jobs there and go uh, work in an advertising agency. Because when I was in college, I also did a lot of internships. I worked at Interview Magazine. I worked at New York Times. I worked at uh, Benetton Sports Systems. I worked at Tommy Hilfiger, all in advertising sales marketing positions. So I was going down that path. I didn't go down the Wall Street path. Um, unfortunately, I'd be drinking a lot better today if I did. Um, <laughs> I know. I'm like, could be, that could have been done at 40 with a million dollar seller. <laughs> <laughs> but and and then when I realized that you know that job at uh, in the advertising agency was paying eighteen thousand dollars a year, I said I got to get the hell out of here. So I left Chicago and um, moved back to New York without a job. Why Chicago? I'm just curious. Um, you know, I went to a training program in Detroit with this company called okay. Entertainment U.S. Uh, Entertainment Publications, and they have offices all over the world. And I, you know, I just moved to Chicago, and I, I loved it. I true to this day, I still have a warm uh, spot in my heart for Chicago. I think it's it, it brings the best and the brightest out of the Midwest and to this, you know, metropolis that is just uh, really amazing people, good community, good neighborhoods. Reminded me a lot of, you know, home. Yeah, no, I could see that. I mean, because my grandparents lived in Chicago. I didn't spend a lot of time there but when I was younger. But older, when you meet people, like there's lots of cities in the Midwest. But like I said, I mean, like it's like it's like anything else. If you're if you move from Detroit to Chicago, you move from Milwaukee to Chicago. Like it brings the breast and bitus, and it's a, it's a different. Um, it's not the Midwest. It, it's a, it's Chicago. You know, agree one hundred percent. You know, yeah. I mean, I mean it is the Midwest, but you know, you know exactly what I'm saying. So, you were working in advertising, getting uh, grossly underpaid because I'm sure you had student loans, eighteen k a year is not going to cut it. No, <laughs> but but I made I made the whoppingly good choice of going to advertising to publishing and the edit side and paid me a lot more money, you know, just a ton of money. Um, and no, I did. I came back to New York and I ended up uh, getting a job. This is 1996. Getting a job at Sports Illustrated to work in their online their, department, their, online their, division, their swimsuit edition division. <laughs> the, that's what he thought. Right? The online 1996. I'm that, working, that's I'm like building cutting edge. Web, building websites. I know. Yeah, that's cutting edge. 96. And, People don't get that. These kids don't get like the internet. Like I think I got my first email address like in 96. I mean, it had been out but for a while, and I was 25. So I was like, I don't know, email email. Dude, same. I mean, I literally <laughs> dropped a class my senior year in college, 1994, going into 95, because the professor said you had to email your homework in. I'm like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> and 1994, 95, and I left. And I was like, I dropped that class. I'll take the next, the other one, the other rocks for jocks class. Um, and and literally a year later, I'm building, you know, fantasy sports games for Sports Illustrated for kids online. I'm running like the, I'm the commissioner of the website instead of webmaster <laughs> um, and just doing some really cool fun stuff. Photo editing, working with edit um, writers, working with designers, layout people, hand coding HTML, like, you know, just doing all this fun, cool shit. And um, and at the same time, I was, you know, aggressive and ambitious and I was writing business plans for magazines and I pitched a couple to Time Inc. while I was working in the online department of Sports Illustrated and the 34 floor and the floor where all the C-level execs live, they were like, we got to get this kid out of the online department. I think he's got some potential. So they moved me, they got me, they helped me get a job in consumer marketing. 
working at Time Magazine, and that rolled into finance department, and then that rolled into advertising sales. And then, you know, during that progression, every two years, I was doing something new. Mm. Um, came, you know, some respectability, came the corporate card, came the dining out in New York City, entertaining clients, um, drinking well, eating well, learning about wine, teaching myself about wine. And that's really, that was the impetus to a lot of where I stand today um, from just gaining knowledge and history with wine. So, um, a movie I, I really like uh, is the remake, Ben Sloted, of The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, about the decline of, about how digital publishing took over from print publishing. You seems like you were kind of in that era um, with with Time, Inc., um, <clears throat> what what uh, and you're pitching and you're pitching magazine ideas. Um, so what was what was like? We, you know, from a text uh, point of view, what was it like as as magazines and these big behemoths were beginning to you know? Because Time Warner owned AOL, like beginning to pivot. Like, what was that like to kind of? You were kind of in the center of that, actually. No, it was great. I mean, uh, Time Inc. Time Warner. In 1996, they started, 1997, they started Pathfinder, which was a content hub for okay. all the publications, Time, Sports Illustrated, Money, Fortune, People, Entertainment Weekly. And it was like, it, it, they were, people were throwing money at it, but there was, the advertising wasn't there yet. Okay. And subscribing wasn't there yet, because people were subscribing to AOL and CompuServe. And then with AOL and CompuServe, you got this access to the World Wide Web. And so no one was going to pay for more stuff that after that. The World Wide Web. <laughs> like, we're so old. <laughs> so, yeah. CompuServe. Um, I work with kids. They don't even know like like that the internet is on their phone. Like they're just like whatever. It's my phone, man. Like they don't even like think like you know. It's like it's an app. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. Um, we can have a whole nother talk about the blockchain and how that's going to change everything and, and, well, well, and the I, metaverse. We're, we're, we're going to get into that because you you're doing some pretty cool <laughs> stuff. So um, you mentioned it. Let's let's talk. So you. They the the C level execs like this kid's we like the cut of his jib you know let's get this young man <laughs> let's 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 see. we this young man's got potential um, and so you started doing different stuff like every couple of years you said um, and then the expense account came so what was uh, so obviously that I'm gonna go out on a limb but that's where you really started to dive into food and wine yeah okay so like what was like what was like a, a, like a first meal like you went out and like and then you learn and you were like oh fuck I gotta learn about wine like there had to be like a, an occasion or something that well, spawned it, or you just might have loved it you know no it, it actually didn't happen with any of my clients it happened to some of my friends' clients so all all of the smarter people in my class went to work on Wall Street and make all the big bucks but they were still very mindful of of uh, of eating and drinking and when you when Wall Street guys and girls go out they tend to look at the wine list and they go and they're going to steakhouses and they're you know this is the late 90s early 2000s yeah. and they're looking at things like opus one and silver Oaks, Eagle, you, know. you know insignia yeah. and they're just like 200 300 400 a bottle people are pointing at it and so it got to a point where my some of my friends are like hey dan we hang out with you anyway you know some of my clients come with us and like just navigate the wine list because my expense budget is kind of you know it's kind of tight this month <laughs> And like, I'm going to give you the wine list because you're the wine guy. And um, 
and I was able to kind of like buy wines that were, you know, 40 to 60, 70 on the list with a good story. And I was able to tell the story and, and everyone like then he didn't care. It wasn't about like, oh, I'm buying the most expensive because it's on someone else's dime. And that's how this business works. Mm -hmm. um, but people then got in. They were like, oh, yeah, cool. And it didn't it didn't depress the, the situation at all for my friends who were entertaining clients. It actually elevated the experience. And so that's kind of like that was when it happened to me and it happened in all the steakhouses of New York City. <laughs> and, I, and I transferred that over to my life, uh, you know, at Time Inc. in entertaining clients and then going out. Uh, you know, I, I remember getting kicked out of uh, um, the Palace Hotel where Time Magazine was hosting an event because my clients were underdressed. And my boss was like, get those guys out of here. And there's two young girls in their 20s just coming straight from the ad agency. They're like, get them out of here. This is not, you guys can't, you're not, you're not, they're not, you guys are not dressed for the occasion. He's like, go next door and have dinner and I was like that's Le Cirque <laughs> and I was like are you and I didn't say that out loud but I'm like that's Le Cirque I'm like are you paying he's like yeah I'm paying so I went and blew up Le Cirque you know on his dime um, so it was just it was awesome I mean New York City during that era the early you know late 90s early 2000s if I only knew what I knew today I mean hindsight's 2020 we all say that but oh my god I mean the amount of the amount of crazy drinking that could have went on if you go back in time. That oh, would, yeah. That's when you want the time machine. You want that time machine to go back to some of the great restaurants of New York City in the late '90s and start, you know, drinking Petrus for you know a couple hundred bucks or DRC for yeah. a couple hundred bucks. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, like that was working in you know at Acker, which is high level in New York in the late '90s. The, the tastings were ridiculous. Like, like I, you know, when when the Wine Spectator came out with its top ten wines of the century, and and you know, before Y, remember Y two K? Of course you did, because yeah. you were coding. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> um, but like, I had had eight of the ten wines of the century because they were available, they were around, and they were affordable. You know, like I mean, compared to what they are, you know, and obviously. I was like, you know, your boss, like I was working with high end clients. They could afford it anyway. They still can afford that shit. But, um, but like now there's, it's just, there's less of it. And it was just, it's, and if I could go back, I would like, oh my God, I'd be dead if I go back. So I don't want to go back. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, so you're, you're, you become the, the wine guy for, for all your friends and you're learning about wine. Um, what, um, how did it grow? Like what, what was the, what, what made you decide to, uh, you know, you had this career, man. You could be like the head of a uh, time Warner publisher now or something, you know, like, like you have, you were on a track. What made you pivot and, and break out and go to Sicily? A uh, couple of things. One, I knew I needed to leave the side of the business I was on, which was, you know, when you worked internally at Time Inc., there was the men's publication and then there was the women's services and women's like People Magazine, Entertainment Weekly, Real Simple, in style. They were crushing it. Like they were making so much goddamn money. Um, Sexiest man alive. And I needed, I, that could have been me. Uh, <laughs> I was like, you could have been on the cover. Um, Sexiest publisher alive. And, and I said, I knew I needed to get on that side of the business, but. Um, I also was thinking like, oh, I need to go, you know, and Wall Street Journal was launching the weekend edition and they, they, they kind of recruited me and I was like, oh, this would be a really cool opportunity. I don't have to like, I don't have to get out of my comfort zone. Um, but I had taken a trip with some business school classmates to um, our buddies. 
uh, hometown in Sicily. And we spent a week there, and we just had the best time ever. And this was October of 2004. I bet Sicily in October is just... Oh, it's great. Just right. You know, just, harvest is still kind of going on. The weather is perfect. Um, and we just had a blast. And so when I got back and I started thinking about my career, when Wall Street Journal started recruiting me, um, I was thinking about... you know. This, this experience in Sicily, never living abroad, always feeling bad about it. Playing college football, I couldn't do semesters abroad. Um, I had to kind of like stay local. I grew up in an Italian-American family. Um, I studied art history in college. I studied ancient Roman history in college. So there was some of my minors. Um, and everything was like, I need to live abroad. I didn't travel. We didn't travel as kids. Mm -hmm. And as a family, we went to Long Beach Island, we went to Beach Haven, New Jersey. That was our- LBI. That was, LBI. That was yeah, our, see, it's people like Dan who, why the Jersey Shore? Because the people, on TV are all from fucking Brooklyn. They're not from <laughs> Jersey. We know how to act at the beach. <laughs> so, and and it just, it just during the holidays, I had this conversation with my mom about, um, you know, working. And she, at the time, was like, I'm going to work till I'm 70. I love it. I love the people. They bring me energy. She was obviously an empty nester at that point. I was the youngest of four, and I was 33 at the time. So she's like, I just love work. It's great. And I left that conversation with her, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm that's another 40 years I'm going to work. <laughs> like, I haven't lived 40 years yet. That's a long freaking time. Yeah. And so it's like, if it's now or never. I had, I had no relationships to, 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 to kind of be, to anchor me to New York City. I owned a small apartment. I knew I can kind of cash out and make some money and, and fund a year sabbatical. Um, so I, 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 was, I was free to do what I wanted to do. Yeah. And that's, and that's uh, so I basically turned down one job, quit another job, sold an apartment, uh, called my, you know, prior to that, I called my friend from from Sicily who was living in, in New Jersey at the time um, uh, and asked him, I was like, hey, could you introduce me to those people? We went to that big old palazzo and we drank some wine and ate some, you know, you know, some really cool, uh, really cool, like fresh fish. And and I was like, I want to go and just live in Europe and, and maybe work on a vineyard or something. And he was like, you're crazy. Go work in the Wall Street Journal. And I was like, I was like, no, no, seriously, make the call. And so he made the call. And that's how I got to Vela Delicate. And I basically worked three days a week uh, with a father and son who owned 50% of a cooperative business. And they owned, they were mostly the viticultural side. So kind of went there, did some harvesting, did some pruning, did all that stuff. And um and I just lived in Italy for a year and traveled around a lot of Italy's uh, wine growing regions and explored um, and then just visited some friends in London that were living there, spent some time in Paris and just kind of lived the life I never, you know, I always thought about and, and aspired to based on what I saw on the pages of magazines. I, right. was, I was like one of the charter subscribers to Condé Traveler when I was like 16 years old. I was a kid who never, <laughs> never left the country, never <laughs> only been to New Jersey <laughs> and I was reading Condé you know, Traveler at 16. So um, I had a I always had a vision for, you know, kind of uh, living outside of my world. Oh, very nice. So that's a pretty good gig because when most people go to work harvest, if you go to work harvest in fucking California, like you're going to work all day, every day for 30, 40 days. <laughs> How'd you get this three day gig at Val de Cate? <laughs> it, it was like I wasn't legally there, like, you know, and it was a, that period of time when they started, they put they, they put in that 90 day thing where mm -hmm. you have to get out of the country 90 days, come back. And I, oh, and what I learned very quickly when I traveled in and out of the airports in Rome was just just pretend like the Italians are great people. They're the most hospitable, welcoming people in the world. You just walk up to the thing. 
walk up to the immigration and be like, and, uh, and, and, and they're like, hey, and then like, you just throw me a passport. They don't check. And it's like, hey, go on. <laughs> you know? And it's just, it, was, it was really easy like to get in and out and to move around the country. Um, and it was, yeah. And I was fortunate. You know, they drove me to work every morning. They got me a coffee and espresso on the side of the road at the gas oh station. God, that's awesome. Went to the vineyard. We left at 11, 30, 12, brought me back to their house, cooked me a little lunch, um, and that was it. It was just, it was, it wasn't, I always say, I didn't learn how to make wine, I didn't learn how to, to grow grapes when I lived in Sicily. I learned how to appreciate wine, because on Monday when we started work and had lunch at their house, we opened a bottle of wine, put it on the break front. On Wednesday when we came back, took it off of the, the, the you know, the kind of the break front over next to the dining room table, poured ourselves a glass of wine, put the cork in it, put it back. On Friday, same fucking bottle of wine. And I was, work, I'm, we're in a 200-year-old palazzo. These guys have owned, the wine, they've been in the wine business of their third generation. I was expecting to like be ripping corks on, you know, Neto Davila <laughs> from the 40s, like out of their dusty old cellar. And I'm like, we're drinking current wines. They pull from the winery the, on Mondays. And we drink one bottle a week, three people, nine glasses. And and, and they don't have like Zalto or Jancis Robinsons or no. Riedel. It's just like a little. A little six-ounce, you know, glass of water. Yeah. Thing uh, cup, <laughs> like hey, what just about? Um, and then, but I just want to. I, I do want to tell one more story please. about Enzo Pontoni from Miani, who's uh, um, who's a genius, uh, also another another recluse like like the <laughs> like the prince. Um, but he, you know, I I went and tasted with him in 2010 as I started getting into you know Italian white wines, making Masacana in, in Napa Valley, making Tokai Filano, Ribola Gialla, uh, working with these Northeast Italian grapes, and um, he's a, a monster of a man. He makes me look small. Um, he took us out. You know, I met him at six o'clock at his uh, at his winery. He took us out to the vineyards in the rain. Came back, drank some wine. I asked if I can buy wine. He said no, no red wines, only white wines. Thirty euros a bottle. I had no cash. He said come back tomorrow. I come back tomorrow with the cash. Um, sitting in his mom's kitchen with my wife, at the, uh, my girlfriend at the time, um, and then. Uh, his Enzo's kid and like these three older gentlemen um, who just like came with like a bag of cheese, a bag of bread, a bag of prosciutto and, <laughs> and cured meats. And I was just like on this little tiny table about the size of where we are to, sitting having this chat. Um, and then Enzo comes in later. He's like, oh, you're back, blah, blah, blah. And I gave him a bottle of Moscow. And he, he, um, he went to the cellar to get it. He wanted to taste it. And then he put it in the freezer. Um, and then when like, we're eating, you know, the, 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 three, <laughs> the three gentlemen pull out the cheese, the bread. The, and all of a sudden, um, we, we, we slam the bottle of Masakan. He goes, he gets up, squeezes behind me, p- opens the door from under the sink where like the garbage can and the Windex are located. <laughs> and he pulls out the three bottles of wine that we drank yesterday sitting at the same table. And it was like a, th- and that, that Merlot at the time was a $300 bottle of Merlot in, in, in a New York City, you know, Shit. retail shop. Like, and he had it just, he put it under the, the, the sink next to the garbage can. And, and I was like, so I, I always, long story <laughs> short, but it's an important one. I learned how to appreciate it. I learned that wine isn't precious. Um, we treat wine very preciously here in the United States. We, we, they're assets to us. And um, even though they're liquid assets, but you know, they're- You're supposed to drink that shit, man. It, it's supposed, it's not supposed to be that precious. It and, isn't. And, uh, and that's what I learned. I won't so. go Patrick Capiello far, but, but it's, it is not, it's not that it's, 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 you said it's not as precious. We, we're so good in America at 
capitalism <laughs> and commoditization. <laughs> it's like seriously, we we're good. Yeah, we're good at adding value to things, and... or, or we're good at the creation of value. I don't know if we add value, but we are good at cr- creating the impression of value. Nailed it. That that nailed it. You said it best, right there. <laughs> you know, this is now a business podcast. Everybody. Yeah, I, well, it's not just this, this is not just about wine. <clears throat> never, um, it never. It, it shouldn't be. Wine is a conduit for conversations. That's all. Hundred percent. You're, you know, so um, you know what? Let's take a quick break and then we'll come back. Um, so we're gonna take a quick break and uh, I'll be right back more with Dan Petrosky. Hey, everybody, what's up? It's your boy, MJ. I know you like podcasts because you're listening to one right now. If you want another one to check out, you will love Where the Wine Takes You. It's Apostle Robles Wine Podcast hosted by Adam Montiel. And this podcast is all about the wines, winemakers, and stories of Apostle Robles. It's available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to it on their website, PasoWine.com. P-A-S-O wine.com. Hey, hey, what's up? It's your boy MJ again. Fun fact for you. Did you know that the ideal temperature to store wine is 56 degrees? Well, Joe Bembry and the crew at 56 Wine not only know that, they also had the audacity to name their store 56 Degree Wine. They even kept the thermostat set at 56 degrees until a few customers complained that it was a bit chilly. Listen, if you're looking for a great selection, of carefully curated wines of perfect provenance, you need to go check them out. That's 56degreewine.com. You can use the code MJ at checkout and receive 15% off your first order. Okay, we're back. So before we leave Sicily, do you have any more? Tell tell people about Sicily because I saw like, I watch all these, I watch a bunch of shows because I want to have my own show, right? So I'm watching Food Network and I'm watching travel shows and I'm watching Tucci and I'm watching blah, blah, blah. Um, but Sicily's really, people don't, people don't realize how dope Sicily is because it was a port, like all the influences. So what was it like to have all those, obviously you had, you had begun your food and wine journey, but like, like, like every part of the world went through Sicily. What's it like? Talk about like the food and, you know, just like and the spices and, you know. No, you you nailed it. It's um, you know, I, I can't remember if it was Plato or Socrates who once wrote, you know, translating here uh, that Sicily was the lily pad of the Mediterranean. Mm. It's where all sixteen bordering countries of of the Mediterranean, at some point in time, had influence in Sicily and rule domination and rule. And what they left is they left this an amazing culture of food. Um, and it's like so from one side of the island to the other, you go from you know the fresh fish and and very Greek style kind of you know fried foods, and and then you go to the other side of the island, it's very Moroccan and North you know African and. It's just crazy and it's beautiful and all those things make up this kind of this, this wonderful melting pot of diversity of uh, food and wine. But um, it was great. I mean, I lived right near the uh, right near the Piazza Duomo in downtown Catania on the eastern seaboard. Mm. Um, we had probably the best open air market uh, in Europe, in my opinion. I mean, it was a fish market plus a vegetable market. And it was great because, you know, a little old lady who lived in my building showed me around, she said, this is where you buy your cheese, where you buy <laughs> your bread, awesome. this is where you buy your toilet papers, where you buy 
the bottle of water, and this is your tomato guy. That you know, that's your your, your fig guy. Um, and literally everything was one euro, one kilo, two point two pounds of tomatoes for a dollar eighteen, which was a conversion at the at the. And it literally it was like one euro per kilo, one euro per kilo. And I would go and just like acquire all this stuff like once a week, and then I, you know, you had to get to the bread shop before twelve thirty, or they closed, and it was over. Wow. So, I had to do all this, and it was just amazing. Um, and we drank, you know, the reason why Masakan is here today is because of my my living in Sicily. It's obviously Mediterranean climate, uh, very hot, very dry, very breezy, good diurnals. Uh, we drank so much white wine. And in 2005, 2006, Mount Etna was basically a white wine producer. You know, Cornelessen mm-hmm. and those guys, you know, that came in there in like 02, I think 02, 03. They really hadn't gotten going yet. Red wine, I meant Benanti family who I rented a, an apartment from. Had the greatest white wine in Italy, you know, Pietro Medina in the late 90s. Um, they bought some land in the, in the southeast to, you know, that was Nero, was Nero Davila, you know, vineyards, because they were like, yeah, Etna's not the future. This is 05, right? Oh and, my then, God. And, and they're like, Etna's not the future. Nero Davila, it's like this, it's kind of this new, it's, an, it's the new Syrah. Right. It's a spicy, crunchy, red fruited, has really good kind of, um, you know, kind of textures and it has really good aromas and it has a mid palate. Um, so they were going, they were going to go in all in on that. And then they ended up, you know, it was around 2008 when Jancis Robinson, you know, dropped the mic on Sicily and said that Etna could be a Bur- like the Burgundy of Italy. And everyone was like, what? Um, and that's when, that's literally when I think the red wines of Mount Etna became important or popular. Um, but prior to that, like, I don't remember ever drinking unless I went to a winery drinking a Etna red when I was living there for a year. Mm-hmm. We always bought Aetna Whites. Mm. So, And what was... is it about Mount Aetna that, um, with the Whites um, for you, that you found so compelling? Living that close, I mean, if you're if you're on Eastern Seaboard, like Mount Etna dominates. Um, I, living in Catania, kind of like Rainier, if you're out. <clears> yeah, it's, 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 it's just, up, you just see it; it's huge. It's right up there. It's the yeah. third largest active volcano in um, in uh, in Europe. Um, it is, you know, got elevation. It's right up on the sea, so it's got cooler climates. It's got, you know. Uh, humidity from the sea. It's just everything there. They've got the, um, the 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 actual you know volcanic soils, real volcanic soils. You know, lava. Right, right. Lava. Actually, like we have <laughs> them here, but like it's like it's like, like from the Jurassic period. But they're like, yeah. no, that shit is like it could blow any uh, moment now, bro. <laughs> and 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 I think you know the one thing that I. I was talking to someone about recently because you know obviously Napa Valley has been um, uh, been kind of tr- uh, the tragedies of the fires we've had yeah. in Sonoma, yeah. all of California, Sonoma County, all not just Napa and Sonoma, but all of California in the last five years. Um, I was, ta- was talking to someone about like, oh, we should talk to people in Mount Etna. Like that that fucking volcano blows like three or four times a year. Like there's ash and smoke. How do they? How did the winemakers deal with that? Like it's it's in constancy. Like it's not like it, it happens like five or six times a year. <laughs> like you just like there it goes again, and everyone stops the car, takes a picture, you know. Um, so yeah, it was it was just great, and the and the white wines are just. They're just everything I want them to be, and that's you know what where I think about Masakan. It's like I want to drink white wines from the Mediterranean. They have to have a little bit of that almond, almondy character to it. They have to have the salinity to it. They have to have the florals, the blossoms, you know, citrus trees. Um, they have to have you know just you know they don't have to have fruit. You know, I don't consider citrus. Fr- 
you know, kind of how we think about California sunshine and fruitfulness right. in a wine. Right. I think of citrus as that kind of like, it's a little bit more like um, a, a, a basically a characteristic as opposed to like, it's not a fruitfulness. No, it's tart, tangy, yeah. but yeah, it's not, you don't, you don't like, like you, an apricot, there's a difference between an unripe apricot and a ripe apricot. A lemon's a fucking lemon. You got to put some sugar on it if you want to be sweet. So it's, you're right, it's, it's not a fruit in that yep. sense. Um, so your plan was, so you're in, you're in Sicily and you traveled around uh, Europe, you said, and um, I, I want to stay here. It's so fun. I love the Dan, dance, dance trip around Europe. So you said you went to Paris and London. Like, did you have any really cool meals either in those places? Like did you do the bistro thing where you, were you smoking uh, Galois and at Bistro Paul Bear, or, you know, al fresco? Like what was, what was, what was that like? <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, <laughs> well, unfortunately, I, I moved to uh, I, I moved to Italy at the same time when like Europe was uh, banning cigarettes inside. Um, I remember when, we ban when Bloomberg banned smoking in New York City in '02. The Time Life Building, you know, you mentioned the Walter Mitty movie. You see, you saw a lot of it in that yeah. movie. Um, the Time Life Building, we were still allowed to smoke if we closed our doors in the office. It's, I, it's I like, mean, people don't even like, I remember like nuts, man. everywhere because I'm, I'm a little bit older than you. And like, I remember going to the banquet mom and people would have a cigarette on their desk. Like, it was just smoke everywhere. People yeah. don't give a fuck about kids and smoking. It was just like, it was just smoke everywhere. And, and I smoked for a while too. And like, I remember when I moved to California, like, it was already banned. I moved to California in 99. It was already, but you had to smoke outside, but it was Santa Barbara, so it was not a bad yeah. climate. But like, that that's so weird. So yeah, for Europe, I mean, and Europeans smoke differently, in my opinion, than Americans. They smoke for pleasure. We Americans, they like I gotta fucking smoke for it. We're sucking it down. You're all tense. Whereas whereas Europeans like long draws and just so calm yeah. and like you know super long ass. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. and, just, and you're like you're just staring at it, waiting. It's like a it's like a movie, it's like exactly. a Fellini movie. How long exactly. do we stare at the ass exactly. until it until it drops? And then it's like oh, the death and decay. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just so momentous. But yeah, great, did you great cinematography. Great meal. Any great meals? Obviously in Paris. I was definitely on a budget back okay. then. Um, I knew how much money I had in the bank based on what I had sold a small apartment for in Brooklyn. So I wasn't killing it. Yeah. Um, I was young. I was even though I was early thirties. I wasn't kind of like going nuts. I was lo I was loving the pub life in London. I had good friends who lived there, so we used to always go drink beers. Um, in Paris, I was there. I literally was there for two weeks. But it was we we used to play a couple of card games um, where it's like you know one card card screw your neighbor and stuff like that. So a couple of friends would come in and we'd literally just sit in in bistros and like play these card games and be there from like noon to four, drinking you know just ordering the a next carafe of white wine or red wine and and just keep drinking and ordering, you know, kind of, uh, you know, bistro food. Yeah. And bistro food and white wine is like just, it's, you know, and, and then laughing and playing cards and spending, you know, wasting away four hours in the afternoon. Like, <sighs> you want to live that. You, you, that's what vacation should be. That's what life should be. <laughs> that, it, totally, it totally reminds me. One of my favorite movies is You, Me, and Dupree, which is so underrated because I love uh, Owen Wilson. And he was like, he's like, 
I was. I remember in Argentina, they, they're they're much more forgiving there. Like I could just spend the whole day in a cafe, and no one would think blink an eye. Right? Just, you don't have to work. Just fucking show up and drink wine and eat tapas or just eat bistro food all day. Like that actually is living. We 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 work our asses off. You know, it's it's funny to say that because I was in a coffee shop in Brooklyn, um, and I was getting my coffee, and, and then there was a sign that said "No Wi-Fi on weekends." <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> I was like, okay, I get it. I get exactly. it. Like, we've, know, we've abused that privilege, exactly. the coffee shop. No work. more getting a cup of coffee, <laughs> taking huge dumps in our bathroom, and sitting here all fucking day. So four, four hours. hours. <laughs> nope. That's that's why that's why the latte is seven dollars. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a filter. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but yeah, it was. But the the, the, Euro, the European lifestyle. It's um, you know I I, I I translate that to back to the American mm-hmm. lifestyle. And I think we have a long way to go, and we're still we're still evolving. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I I personally, you know, I think we're. The food industry and the and the focus on, you know, the, the the plethora of food magazines that came out over the years, the the move towards a celebrity chef, um, food TV. I think we we started as a, a culture in America during that you know '90s and aughts, um, up until 2010 or so, in a 10, 15, 20 year period where food became important and yeah. relevant yeah. and a conversation piece. Yeah. And it wasn't until like around 2010 when then there was, you mentioned Patrick Capiello and like, I'm sure he like is embarrassed for being a celebrity psalm back when he was a celebrity psalm. But like, I think that there, like then we went like the wine side. Now we knew where the eggs came from yeah. and the chicken's name, yeah. like that whole Portlandia joke. Yeah. But now it, that's so, a great episode. But then, now, but then it's like now <laughs> Ends up wearing a dress. <laughs> but now we need to know where the grapes are from and who the farmer was and what the you know. I I just got an email. I don't. I hate to throw this guy under the bus, but I just got an email and they asked me about my vermouth. What? How are the grapes grown? I'm like, if you're drinking Campari or you're drinking vermouth. Do you really care if the grapes were grown organically? I'm like, yeah, I mean, I'm com- like you're drinking the most manipulated com- com- is thing dirty. in the world. Like, Campari has like it's dirty. I'm like, let's go get a Negroni and talk natural wine. It's like it's just a it's like a fuck. It's a Portlandia episode. Like, it's just not the the two things don't make sense. Right. Um, so, so I was just. Oh I'm, I'm, I ignore, sorry, I'm sorry I, no, if I just they, threw you under the bus. They don't. No one knows. He knows who he is. He he have to listen to his podcast. So. Um, and uh, but I, I ignore those questions that come with them live. What was the bricks? <sighs> Where read the fucking tech sheet, bro? <laughs> Seriously, I'm having a conversation here. I had a conversation with a winemaker. Um, so, but the plan was to come back to New York City and and become the number one wine rep in New York City. Right? That was the number, that was the plan. It was. Um, <laughs> there, you know, I, I think LinkedIn. Yeah, LinkedIn was around then. Um, but. The, I didn't know what the job landscape looked like. Okay. So I didn't know, you know, I had 10 years of corporate experience, have, you know, I love writing business plans and love being strategic. Um, but, you know, a small family winery, whether it be from Tuscany or California, doesn't really like hire, you know, MBAs, product, consumer <laughs> packaged good MBAs to like run their business. You know, they're a small family winery and they're just like, you know, they're, they're, they're forecast, it's a 10 day weather forecast. It's yeah. not, it's not like a 10 year strategic plan. And so it was really hard. I didn't know what to do except go work for a very large beverage company okay. um, or, you know, kind of 
be blessed with an opportunity that I was given to go continue my kind of sabbatical from life um, and go work at uh, Dumal as a harvest intern and also Larkmead as a harvest intern. as a dual internship in 2006 uh, because the winemaker was the winemaker for both. So he wanted... You know, right, because that's the first time I heard the Dumal part of that. Um, great wine. Both of those are great wine. So how'd you, how'd you get hooked up with that? Like, was that LinkedIn or just a friend of... How'd you get connected there? I was very fortunate to... Um, through a friend at the Wall Street Journal, uh, be introduced to a friend in California uh, who started Anhill Farms, um, the Pinot Noir company, in 2004 when you know Pinot was starting to take off. And this, uh, this thanks to Sideways. Thanks. <laughs> For, I mean, Pinot was starting to take off. It was like, it was, that was a nice little kind of that extra push to the back of the big wheel, you know? Um, that, you know, movies, shit like that fucks it up though, man. Cause like, I remember being in Santa Barbara and like when, when Steve Kissler owned Kissler, like Kissler Pinot was sick in 99, yeah. 2000. Was, oh my, like I lived with this dude who like would buy eight cases of the Chardonnay just to get his one case of Pinot Noir. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, and I, and, and I never even seen that when I was in New York and then like, Flowers had just come out, and who who's the winemaker at H and O? Who was Flower? I'm, this came up that, yesterday. It wasn't Ross Cobb. No, maybe. no, no. It's um. Oh, come on. He worked in. Maybe Shanko. it was Ross Cobb. No, it wasn't Ross Cobb. I. Oh my God, he's so funny. Uh, this is this is a second podcast in a row where um, Flowers has come up, and, I, and I'm I'm drawing a freaking blank. But um, he's really old school, dude. Oh my God. All right, listen, we're going to edit this one out. No, we're not going to edit it out. Listen, <laughs> I, what I love is like people listen to podcasts like, oh, MJ, that was so-and-so. I'm like, thanks, man. So you guys know who I'm talking about. I know. Oh, my God. I can see his face. I can see his face. I did an IG Live when I'm like really early on. I can see his face. Mm. Anyway, um, but he has to start flowers and 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 just like – so it's, it's interesting because – um, like you said, Pinot became an American thing. It became popular because of a movie, basically. But like some of those old school, like Joseph Swan, like I'm just those old school RRV people, sick shit. Um, so I digress. So um, you're out there with Dumal. So uh, there's people who probably don't know Dumal and Larkmead. So please tell them about these are his. I mean, Larkmead is historic. Dumal is. Just makes killer shit. Tell so 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 some of the people who may not know talk about like like that's pretty prestigious. I didn't realize it was the same winemaker. So talk about yeah. That. I, thank you. No, I'm you know Andy Smith. He a Scotsman who ended up working studying in New Zealand. Got you know got his first job in California in the mid '90s. He worked for he did harvest and internship at uh, Literai with Ted Lemon. He worked Another for he worked person. for Michael Havens at Havens. Oh my, I used uh, to love Havens Borico because I love I'm a Cheval Blanc fan. Ugh. And and uh, so he. Um, he then got a job working for uh, Paul Hobbs, uh, and when he was working for Paul Dan, Hobbs, you're just, Dan, you just like got me naming all the all the all the ballers, bro. Yeah. And he his his three clients were Dumal, Gemstone, and Larkmead. One of his three clients, because mm-hmm. you know Paul had assistants who then right. did all his work for him. Um, and Andy was just a, he was super talented. And when he decided to break off on his own, um, he took Dumal, Larkmead, and Gemstone with him. Dumal had started in 1996. Larkmead started to make wines commercially in 1997. So Paul, it was Paul Hobbs helped, you know, kind of launch those brands. You know, Larkmead has been around for 125, 26 years yeah. now. But they were just they modern, you know, they're a modern winemaking brand. Like they sold grapes from 1948 to 1997. They still sell grapes today. They didn't make wine during that, you know, 50 year period of the second half of the 20th century. Um, 
and Andy kind of helped bring them to prominence. And then also with Dumal, he became an owner. But yeah, I used to I used to look up to him, and, and I still do to this day. I mean, he at the time when points. 95 points mattered. He had 95 points over like six different grape varieties. Mm. Not a lot of people had that mm, kind of that range, man, that range. He was just, you know, everyone talks about Michelle Roland being a great blender. I've, I've, because of the way we used to make lark meat, mm. it was really great to watch this man blend and, and learn from that. So I always, you know, I, I think he's, he has a, a knack at like picking the wine. Um, and yeah, and he offered me. He liked me because I I knew Morrissey. I knew about Morrissey. It was his favorite band. And he like we. I was an adult, and I was thirty three years old. I and lived you in knew Europe. about the Smiths. And he and, reel around the fountain. And uh, <laughs> so like we had we had we had he just I was mature. Like when you when yeah. you get a lot, a lot of harvest interns, they're usually like younger. They're you know harvest hopping from the southern hemisphere to northern hemisphere yep. and so forth and so on. And um, and so we just kind of got on well together and he trusted that I was going to work hard and he nicknamed me the machine. Um, and he knew that I was curious and he knew that he, I would lock the doors at night when I left wow. Lark and <laughs> I literally was at Lark by myself for 10 years in the cellar and I'm the only person who worked in the cellar for 10 years. Um, and then when we started to, when we reinvented Lark in 2013 and released in 2016, they wanted to put me on the road more. Um, so I hired I, my first assistant winemaker in 2016 and that was, you know, so I basically did all the wine work, you know, during the off season harvest, we brought in interns, but during the off season, I did all the wine work for Larkmead, all the wine work for Masakan and it's repetition, man. It's like, it's just a repetition, just doing it over and over and over again. Winemaking, I hate to say this is manufacturing and you just got to keep, you do the same thing every day and, um, True winemaking, the art of winemaking is the vision of what you want to create. Right. It's not the it's not artist's art or artisanist artisanship in making it. It's just the artisanship and art of what you want to create, and uh, and seeing the vision for the vineyard into the glass, um, and that's where I think the art is. And and some people can see the vineyard into the glass, um, and I tried to train myself on that. Yeah, I used to. Uh be like a trainer like success trainer all that shit sales trainer and I should tell people all the time success is not sexy success is doing the same shit over and fucking over cats ran for what 25 years saying the same fucking lines every fucking night it's not like it's not really sexy to be successful but like you said there was a vision when they sat down we're gonna just cats gonna be incredible you know costuming but like the actual success part i remember seeing this thing on the eagles they were like they broke up because one guy's like, I don't want to sing. He's like, motherfucker, you're going to sing that fucking song. It pays the bills. Like, you're singing the same fucking songs every night. It was over Ticket to the Limit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, well, it's, you know, and, and I, you know, just going back to the, the sports analogies, I don't know if it was John Wooden or Phil Jackson or who said it, but, you know, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. Yep. Yep. And that is, that's that's as you said it's not sexy it's, to get out there and run routes and block and blocking and tackling and all that shit it's not sexy but it you know on a saturday or sunday afternoon that's when it comes right to fruition right so you you actually you know you said you're in the cellar at lark meat for 10 years long but you started a uh, massacon in 2009 what what was the inspiration what was the vision if you will it was the, it was the fact that i 
kind of just threw myself in waist deep into Pinot Noir and Cabernet um, and Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc and Merlot for four years living in California wine country, but going asking myself why are we drinking these things when it's you know it's you know, why am I drinking this fucking Merlot? <laughs> like it's like you know houses are small, yards are. I want, to, I want to say tall. <laughs> Bikini small, heels yeah. tall. Now, houses are small, <laughs> yards. She, she liked the ocean. ocean. <laughs> Going back to Cali. I love it. I love uh, it. But Cheers to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but seriously, the um, we we did a lot of dining outdoors. We you know into the early evenings, and the early evenings stayed really warm. I, mean, right. I lived in Calistoga, and it took the warmest part of Napa Valley in the evening. It's like gets it hits peak temp between four and six, and then it starts to die down. And like it just reminded me so much of the Mediterranean lifestyle of living in Italy and drinking white wine all the time. And we were drinking Napoli Cabernet. We were drinking Pinot, Russian River Pinot, Sonoma Coast Pinot, and I'm like these are, you know, these are, this was during the peak of like the big bold. California sunshine movement where wines are had you know were mouth filling and mouth coating and <clears throat> and just rich and and delicious. There goes that favorite word. Um, and uh, so I just was like, but this isn't what I I, I spent a year not doing this, right. and I've been doing this for four years. It just doesn't make sense to me. So I would take pilgrimages to San Francisco and buy some, you know, kind of European wines because um, it wasn't during that era. There wasn't a lot of wine shipping, you know, five oh six oh seven, and. Um, so yeah, I I just I, I thought about this and I really thought that you know if I was going to do something it would be I wrote a business plan for Cabernet and it didn't make sense. Wrote a business plan for white wine and it was about depletion. It was about drinkability. It was about cash flow. And I was like, that's it. Six months grape to glass. Work with the farmers. Harvest age pretty rapidly, put it under cork, sell it immediately. Sulfur levels down, non-interventionist, boom, get it out there. Um, make it taste like the ocean. Mm. Make it saline, make it floral, make it citrusy, um, like you know, living in the Mediterranean. And that was, that was really what I wanted to do. And I started it with you know, 40,000 bucks and 400 cases. And now I'm up to you know 4,500 to 5,000 cases in this 2021 vintage, and I'm hoping to take it way beyond that. Um, and what grape varietals are you working with? When I first started the Masakon brand, I wanted to make one single white wine. I wanted to make the um, the conundrum of, of, uh. of Mediterranean. I wanted to bring back Bob Mandavi's you know, La Familia label and the Calatau movement and you know Luna Vineyards and I Pinot Grigio. Calatau's. Um, I wanted to do all of that and um, and I want, but I wanted to be one single wine because I wanted the cost efficiency. I wanted to blend it all. I didn't want to buy three different labels, have three different packages, and. And have to sell three different wines, but I realized very quickly when I farmed, when I worked with farmers to get six different grape varieties. My first vintage: Tokai, Filano, Ribola, Jala, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Viognier. Um, five varieties in my first vintage, and that they all didn't play well together in the sandbox. <laughs> and the Sauvignon Blanc was so intense that it made the subtleties of of the Tokai, Ribola, Chardonnay, Ania blend. It made it a Sauvignon Blanc based wine, even at five or ten percent in the blend. Wow! And I didn't want to make a Sauvignon Blanc based wine because I would have to compete with everyone else in Napa Valley. Right. So I reluctantly made Sauvignon Blanc, and that has become one of my hottest wines. But I had to then 
put out three different wines. And, you know, I made that Sauvignon Blanc and I tasted it with the Somme at Dennis Kelly um, at French Laundry. And, you know, one of the first people in Napa Valley to taste it. And he's like, this is great. How, you know, how much? Um, at the time I was selling it like $16 a bottle in California for wholesale. And he was like, how much do you have? I was like, 50 cases? He goes, we'll take all of it. Yeah. And they poured it by the glass. Yeah. And it went on a stretch of like nine, ten straight years by the glass at the French Laundry. And I was like, Shit. I guess I'm a Sauvignon Blanc winemaker now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Just> call me Kim. <laughs> and, and, and so it's become one of my, one of my top go-to wines. It's because I, I really appreciate the, the intensity that's but in it's, that But it's not, to, I mean, it's... No, it's not. It's, it's an old vineyard with a low yield and a warm climate. Uh, with kind of over-vigorous um, canopies that just makes for one of the most intense Sauvignons. It feels, it doesn't feel California. I, always, I jokingly always talk about California sunshine as like, the, right. as like the, the embodiment of a lot of California wines. It's like we make really soft, delicious, fruit-forward wines. Um, but this particular vineyard doesn't, it takes the California sunshine and just creates pure energy. Mm-hmm. And the wine is just ripper. Yeah. And... And you and you and it's um and it's not a lot of people, particularly in Napa, uh, go for a Bordeaux style. So they're throwing some French oak. They're doing a blend on it. I mean, this like I said, it's a ripper, man. It's yeah. in, it's pungent. Great word. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Um, but where did you find? So how did you find Tokai and Rabola in, in Napa? So, you know, back in back in the gold rush era, exactly. <laughs> you know, you go back to the 1849ers, you know, and um, you think about all the everyone who came to America to find gold and made their way across country, and they were all the European immigrants. They didn't find gold; they ended up in California, and they brought with them what they know. So the Italians, the French, the Germans, the Spanish. And so, literally, you know, in 1905, the Nicolini family settled in 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 Child's Valley, Eastern Napa, and they planted, you know, some some grapes because that's what they did in, in Italy. And um, in 1946, their son comes back from World War II and says to their parents, "Why don't we have any white grapes in the vineyard? We drank a lot of white wine when we were in Europe wow. as, as GIs." Mm-hmm. And they planted this, you know, took they planted what they knew, Tocca Friulano, which they were able to access. And I, so, 1946, Tocca Friulano was, you know, part of the Mazzacan blend, and uh, it was very, you know, back then it was very like the Italians didn't sell grapes to the French, the French didn't sell grapes <laughs> to the Germans. Like there was, a, there was, it was very much like it was like your community. Yeah. Was, yeah, it was like Napa Valley. It was like, hey, yeah. So, um, so I, I was able to find these things, these rare, you know. Kind of creatures to, to, to steal Matthew, Matthew Rorick's you know tagline for his wines mm-hmm. for all on hope. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just able to find them in and around Napa Valley, but through the help of friends, you know, like Steve Mathias and helped me introduce me to George Vare and uh, the Vare Vineyard when he had Rabola Jala. Tegan Pasalacqua introduced me to the Nicolinis because he was you know making wines for Turley and he he was on on a hunt for old old vine Zen old vine Petit Syrah. So it's like we're amazingly connected community, and the one thing I love about you know California wine country it's it's an open door and an open book, you know the 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 wine makers, the editors, you know if we were you know talking publishing, the editorial folks, the winemakers, we're just so close, com- so closely you know you know connected, and you can call anybody and they'll welcome you in, open up their barrel, pull a sample, and tell you how they made the wine. It's it's truly like something I've never seen before because there's so much competition in in the world. But 
everyone helps each other. So I've, you know, from, from Web Marquez at Anhill Farms, helping me get out to California and getting me, uh, you know, on board at Dumal and Larkmead to, you know, other people helping me throughout. It's like, we just got to keep paying it forward. Um, so I live my life as a winemaker, just offering people chances and opportunities and answering their phone and answering their emails and, and just chatting with them and helping them understand what it is to kind of make that transition because a lot of us want to make a transition from one career to another and it's very you know it's it's like i didn't have the ac- i didn't have the access to any mentors or or job descriptions in 2006 when i mm-hmm. came back to italy it still doesn't really exist mm-hmm. in how you c- change careers um no so i'm just i try to make courage as, yeah i just try to make myself available you know um so you you mentioned earlier that you know, Massacana is Mediterranean inspired. And I remember, uh, it must have been a couple of years ago, when we first met at your 10th anniversary at Verve, you had just changed the label? Yeah, that was that was a great freaking party. Yeah, um, that, we was, had that, was, that was a good day. And you stayed the whole time, yeah, so I, time. I, I, appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate you for that. Four hours in the afternoon of, of drinking yeah, yeah, yeah. some cool shit. Um, yeah, me. no, I, <laughs> I, you know, I'm not a... I, the original label, I kind of did a, a, a mashup of my favorite wineries. So if you if you can visualize the old uh, Masakan winery, it had like the the top border bar that you see mm-hmm. on like Conterno and Gaia, mm-hmm. uh, and then the, the body of the of the wine label had like the handwritten that yep. you see on like um, Palo Bea, Santa Chiara, and all his. Oh my god! Bayo and wines. Now, now it's, it's so funny because I. I'm all set. I'm like, I know the Palo Verde. Okay. And and then there's a, a Sicilian wine, Paso Pichado, which um, had like this big vintage on it and like handwriting. It looked like an old, um, you know, kind of document. And so, you know, I used to, some of my friends in uh, California used to laugh at me like, you have the largest vintage in the history of wine labels on your wine. Like, what the, <laughs> what the fuck? It's the largest. It was like, it was a third of like the back label. And, um, but it was just really me stealing those concepts, cutting and pasting and, you know, asking a friend to lay it out for us. And, uh, and yeah, it was super cool. And, um, and then, so when I decided in my 10th anniversary, it was the opportunity to change. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I love art. I love design. I, um, I feel as, you know, 15 years old, living in Brooklyn, <laughs> subscribing to Comedy Nast, Traveler. <laughs> so I, um, you know, I, 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 there's a couple of things. I love branding. I used, you know, when we worked at Time Magazine, we were always in the, you know, the top 100 brands of, of the, of the year. And mm-hmm. so I always used to think about branding and I started thinking like, what makes these the top and, you know, t- at time we had the red border that yeah. kind of was a signifier of our brand you think of ibm you think of the color blue you think of your know, view click you think of the color orange orange you th- so you there's all these things i said I, you think of louboutin you think of the red sole the, the shoe mm-hmm. and you think of ferraris it's a red car mm-hmm. um so i wanted to own a color so we found this old you know i said i want to own a color i don't want um i don't want to i want to i don't want to be I don't want you to center anything on the label because centering I can do in a work document. Um, it's not design technique. And I want to feel the way I feel when I walk into Charlie Bird and I see an Aesop product in the bathroom. And you know it, you recognize it, it's, you can understand the composition of the label, even though it's simple black and white, but you then you just feel a, a little bit lifted luxury, yep. and you're like, I'm in the right place. He said, lifted luxury, I am in the right place, okay. And then and then it's aspirational, right? So yep. like you just, that bathroom just got mm. elevated, even though it's super dark in there and it smells like urine. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> Sorry, Robert. Sorry, no diss. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> but uh, see you Monday, Robert. So we <laughs> we um, we so we designed that label, and they they really ran with like my old publishing background. So it's like it's title, chapter, verse, page mm-hmm. number, and it's like Masakan, Anya, story, my handwriting in Italian. Page number is vintage. You turn the bottle, like you turn the page of a book, and it translates the whole thing. And it's it's really a thought. I, I said anything I do moving forward has to be a story unto itself has to be thoughtful the blue came 1500 year old fresco in southern italy near monte Masico. it's the blue is archived in the harvard library the pigment library of harvard harvard university and like so everything needed to be thought out and everything needed to be special and i you know i know that's a kind of i'm gonna bump you up to a 3.1 on your college GPA just for the level of <laughs> I learned more. I've learned. You did. <laughs> I learned more after. Label. Look, we all learn. We all learn more after yeah. we get out of school. And I, maybe man. I should put fucking Harvard on my resume. You should. Because I'm like, my label's in there. I mean, everything you need to know about life, you learn in kindergarten. And then, you know, you get through all your school and, and then you're like, oh, then you learn shit you want to learn, not because you're trying to do something <laughs> or it's something you think you're supposed to do. I totally agree. Yeah. I read more books. I went to fucking law school. You know what's reading supposed to do in law school? I read, read so many more books <laughs> after law school. I didn't even buy books one semester. I'm going <laughs> to... Just Mike, to see if I could do it. <laughs> it's kind of like your comment about I went to school in New Haven. I'm going to be like, my wine bottle went to school in Cambridge. The label was conceived in Cambridge. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, the eating some type the of eating, accelerator program in the eating clubs of Harvard <laughs> University. <laughs> so, um, you know, we we've been talking for a while, and uh, we haven't gotten anywhere, <laughs> which is perfect. This is what it. it should be. We're just enjoying wine. Um, but you know, when we when I first when we first warmed up, you we had an editorial note. Um, you are now full time. Massacon, you've left Larkmead. What, what was it like to do? That's got to be scary-ish, like, you know, steady money, income, and like, you know, so what led, led to this? If, if Massacon is going to achieve what I truly wanted to achieve, I need to put all of my heart, mind, soul, and physical activity against it. Um, I couldn't do it half-assed. I couldn't do it 10% of my time, um, 50% of my time. I needed to put it all in there. And I have such a belief that... You know, being Napa Valley's only white wine winery, being one of California's only white wine wineries, I do believe that I have I've built twelve years of of kind of of people agreeing that the wines are good, and whether it be critical or peers or or you know buyers, retail or restaurant, like I, the wines are good and. I want to actually see if it, they're really that good that I can scale them, mm-hmm. and then with scaling, I can make some money on them, mm-hmm. um, and I can, you know, f- live my life um, and pay bills and all that stuff. Yeah. So yep, it's yep. almost it's almost as if you know I, I was did publishing in my twenties. I was a winemaker in my 30s. I'm late into my 40s now, but like, can I be a business person in my 40s? Mm-hmm. Can I take this brand and make it into this, you know? kind of wider accepted, you know, wine brand that still maintains quality but produces quantity and are people willing to keep putting it on their table. Um, and I, I can't, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I couldn't dick around anymore. Um, just, you know, making it a passion project, doing it on the side. It's too important 
uh, to me, it's too important to the, you know, I think it's it's done a great job for the wine industry for, you know, as, as it kind of we all rode that wave of the new California to show the people that you can pick, you know, you can harvest on a lighter, brighter, fresher side, put wines on the table um, that are delicious, but also just, you know, fun and, and food friendly and not cocktails because um, a lot of the wine industry in California because of the sunshine I, I keep referring to creates these really big delicious rum and cokes and if I want a rum and coke I want to drink a fucking rum and coke I don't, I don't need it in my cabernet um, so I just wanted to make it you know I just, I just want to see if I can make this business work and if I can't hey well, we'll see what happens. But it's not Massacon's not just wine. What else are you doing there? And 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 we'll get to the we'll get to the latest thing. But like, you make you make vermouth, you make beer, vermouth, you make some different shit, man. What like what else are you producing on the beverage side? But it was as I was looking at the ten year anniversary. I said, how does you know? How do we become a global beverage company? And because my wines had unique grape varieties that got stuck into a category called alternative whites or aromatic whites, I was like, let me own the aromatic business. I make a mm. Belgian, wit I make a vermouth, which is an aromatized wine, mm -hmm. you know, spirited and aromatized. And then I, was like, I make a Belgian wit beer, which is an aromatized wheat beer. And then I was like, well, the next logical thing is um, coffee. And the next logical thing is gin. You know, these are aromatized or tea, you know, aromatized mm -hmm. beverages. Um, and then gin is, is aromatized vodka, basically. It's a spirit. Yep. Um, so I was like, let me create this arc of what this whole big company is. And, and what I realized very quickly is, and I'm still doing those things, I still have a desire to do those things, but I couldn't do them when I was splitting my energy. I had to focus all my energy on wine because, and I, and then the, the wine people don't sell beer. They don't sell spirits. And then I'd have to create a whole new life around beer, a whole new life around mm -hmm. spirits, including vermouth. Mm -hmm. So I had to think about that and said, okay, let me focus, build brand equity on wine, and then we will continue these things down the line. So that's, that's still part of the, the, the plan, but the, but the wine's the engine. And, you know, sometimes you always want to do this. The thing that you're really good at you always think the grass is always greener on something on the other side and you mm -hmm. forget that you're good at something and I'm yep. good at the wine side. Yep. Do I really need to make vermouth and beer and gin or am I just kind of like trying to be aspirational and, 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 and losing focus? You know, I got to stay in my lane basically. So I'm kind of refocusing and with Mazacan the next three to five years and staying in my lane and growing the wine brand. And those other things will continue to happen, but they'll happen without, you know, a lot of stress in my life. I don't want them to cause me stress and money is stress and they all lose money. Beer, vermouth, they've been money losers for me for 10 years. Yeah, you need to just get a dank IPA and sell it for 25 bucks a four fucking pack. That shit. <laughs> and print, laser printer labels. Dudes are killing it in beer <laughs> and bad beer. Anyway, um, I digress. Um, but you also have pivoted back towards publishing yeah this is this was uh part of you know thinking about masakan as a as something other than wine you know you said it was a conduit to conversation yeah. i i say it's conversations over wine we mm -hmm. wine is the 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 it allows us this opportunity to chat and talk about cool things and during the pandemic when we were all in lockdown i you know i decided i, I said I'm relaunching my Instagram, but I don't want to relaunch my Instagram with like bottle picks and, you know, and like fruit that like signifies what it tastes like. I, 
I don't want everybody else's Instagram. Like, I, like I'm not I'm not OPP right with Andre. I'm like I don't want everyone else's Vino. I don't want everyone else's Instagram. I just want. I, I want my own, right? You know, it's so funny. That's how Black Wine got started. It was a spoof because I like I had my own personal Instagram and like I was doing working with kids back then. This was inspirational stuff. And then my buddy who's a chef. He's like, I, I don't know why I didn't think you just you see what you see. You're in your lane. And like the whole wine thing, I was like, I just started taking bottle shots. Like I was like, it was so stupid. And people yeah. were just following. I didn't take a picture of myself for like three fucking years on my Instagram but to your point it's so funny like and it was like and yeah and like everybody's like there's a stone fruit and there's some salt and there's this and it's like laid out in the bottle and the lighting is already like but literally it was a joke black wine guy just taking pictures of me holding <laughs> bottles dude and I was just gaining fucking followers it was so funny <laughs> so I totally appreciate what you just said oh but I mean I mean fast forward I mean like last year when I, I created a lifestyle magazine in, in relationship with fight and press and um, did it on Instagram only because I'm like everyone spends time on Instagram let me let me see if I can put words on Instagram as opposed to pictures mm -hmm. and um, it wasn't a great success, I'll be honest with you, but I was like, I don't care. I'm gonna continue to do mm -hmm. it because I'm going to make my Instagram a vehicle for conversation or a vehicle for aspiration, especially if it's a lifestyle magazine. I love it. And then you said aspiration a few times. I love that, and, man. And so but I was like, we were all locked we were all locked down. I sat on my couch so many days and nights with a glass of wine, staring at coffee table books, mm -hmm. wanting to like eat in those restaurants, travel to those places, go to those museums. And so I I created that around the Masakan lifestyle. And then during the pandemic, when we started to get pods and we started to come together again, my group, you know, in California, we just kept, we would eat and drink really well, get drunk. And we talk about politics. We talk about race. We talk about all the things that are going on, whether mm -hmm. it be, you know, June and in and, and, and Minneapolis, whether it be, you know, January 6th in Washington, D.C., like the election was important to us. So as I realized that all these things were, this news content was important to me. And it was, it invigorated me. So, you know, I, all I cared about is voting rights. And when I got Dottie Gator to write about voting rights in the first issue of the magazine in August of this year, and I lost some subscribers in Texas. Of course you did. And they, and started, I love you, Texas, but of course and, you did. Lose and they, because it was, it was, a, it was about a, a group in, in San Antonio. And I, to have a Southern black woman write about voting rights in the first issue of the news magazine of Masakon magazine to a woman who I know used to work at a Wall Street Journal with her <laughs> husband is an incredible editor. John Gate, John, and um, I seriously, it still right now I'm getting goosebumps. I'm like, this is the shit I want to do in the wine industry. These are the conversations I want to have. These are the people I want to surround myself mm -hmm. with that want to do great shit. Mm -hmm. And that to me is, you know, you know, as marketers, if you hire a marketing consultant, go hire me here. You want you want to save a bunch of money. Um, you hire McKinsey, they're going to tell you to become a story maker, a storyteller. Oh, right. You got to tell stories about yourself. You got to tell the stories about your brand. But everyone wants to tell stories about themselves. Right. I don't want to tell stories about myself. I want to tell. I want people to be talking around a bottle of Masakan and not talking about the wine, talking to each other and engaging and having debates. Yeah, we may not all agree on stuff. Shit, we just, Sal and Ash, I just published yesterday a story about a young Puerto Rican kid, trans kid. Like, it's literally in a winery 
Instagram. <laughs> like, mm. like, I don't give a fuck. No. I want to be intelligent about who we are and what we do, and I want to open people's minds. We always tell people to open their mind and taste wines and explore and do this stuff. Do it across other aspects of your life. And I know. I know. God damn it. It's hard enough to get you off Josh and fucking Santa Margarita. <laughs> um, so sorry, sorry, I got a little heated there. <laughs> dude, that's what this is about. It's about passion. Um, and, and that's a nice segue to where we're going to talk about last time we talked about before we let you go. Um, climate change. You are the founder and chair of the Environmental and Climate Change Subcommittee. Um, what's that about? Who do you think you are, Dan Petrosky? <laughs> and that's that's I, I'm on the board of the Napa Valley Grape Growers, um, and I just year we kind of finally got you know the the group to to, to kind of focus on, and this is a, this comes out of like research and st- surveying our our constituency, the 700 members, grape growers, owners of vineyards in Napa Valley. You know they think they they want to know what's important to them. We know what's important to them. You know creating world-class, sustainable, resilient vineyards. So we need to do research behind that. Well, what's the challenges that are, are that are gonna appear in front of them? Wildfires, their whole fucking land burning down, and climate change, it's gonna change how we do business. So we we launched this committee and this group, and it's something I was really um, engaged with back in, when I was working at Larkmead, as I looked at the 125th anniversary of Larkmead, which was 2020, and I said, you know, I was like, we can't go pat ourselves on the back for being 125 years, 125 years old. Not a lot of people care about old things Not like dusty old things. They care about young, new, fresh things. And what TikTok. are you going to do for me tomorrow? So we, we talked about what's the next 125 years look like. Well, the biggest challenge is climate change for an agricultural business. And so for, for life business. <laughs> for 20, Yeah. So we so I, I put all my eggs in that basket. And as mm. I started writing op-eds, I started interviewing people. I started hosting seminars. Um, I you know took the opportunity to, to kind of, you know, say if Robert Mondavi was born in 2020 and or was starting a wine brand in 2020 not 1967 would he have started a chateau winery would he have started a bordeaux mm-hmm. grape variety winery in 2020 as opposed to 1967 in 1967 you know Paul Draper at Ridge and Bob Mondavi they knew of like one or two wine regions of the world they mm-hmm. knew bordeaux burgundy and the white hawk wines of germany they didn't know about Vega, Cecilia, in Spain. They didn't right. know about right. um, Grange in Australia. They didn't know they, about Chateau Reyes. They if, they, if they knew about it, they didn't care about it. Right. I mean, you said you worked at Acromero. Go to Sherry Lehman. Sherry Lehman was like, you know, you look at their catalogs from the 60s and 70s. There's nothing in there but Bordeaux and Burgundy and some German wines. They didn't have Spanish wines. It, like That stuff didn't exist on the world stage at that era. So no offense to those guys. Fast forward to 2020, what would you do today if you were starting a world-class winery? Well, I have the arrogance and you know of saying that we are a great wine-growing region in Napa Valley. We can do anything we want. And we couldn't make the next Vegas Cecilia. We couldn't make the next Grange. We couldn't make the next Barcavella. We couldn't make the next Massa Bernino Tarazzi. We can do these things here because we're, we're great at doing what we do, like growing grapes and making wine. And three of... Three of those wines, two of those wines, Vegas, Cecilia, and Grange, are probably in the top 20 wines of all time. Oh, good and, God, and yes. So we have that landscape in front of us of the world's great wines, 
And Napa Valley just needs to like realize that we're moving in a direction faster than we ever had. We're a very nascent business. Yeah, we were around for a while, but the current modern day Napa Valley started in like 1995, 1994, yeah, yeah. 95. Um, internet. And internet, Bob Parker, yep. Wine Spectator, yep. um, Cult Wines of California. Mm-hmm. Yes, Screaming Eagle was er- er- older than that. Spotswood was older than that. Harlem was older than that. But it wasn't until the post Phylloxera era, 90s, that things turned on and people and the record stopped and people turned and looked. It was at Jansen's Robinson 2008 Aetna. Bob Parker 94 Napa Valley 100 point wines which were then releasing in 97 Mm -hmm. and 98 and then that's what turned everything on. You look at the visitation to Napa Valley for wine country we built out that Napa Valley in 25 years faster than anyone has ever done it and it is the greatest wine tourist travel destination in the world and it's t- less than 25 years old, in my opinion. And a big part of that was a great recession that caused everyone to move, you know, stay local. And we, everyone, like, we kind of jumped in our visitations to the Valley during those, that era. But at the same time, in building everything out, we didn't know about climate change. We know about it today. We didn't, we didn't talk about climate change as intensely in 2016, Until Al Gore 17. lost the election. <laughs> so yeah. when people, we actually finally started talking about it. He's like, what am I do now? Okay, let me say the world. But yeah. So it's... Uh, and right, and more but, intensely but because of wildfires. Right, exactly. Intensely yep. because, you know, to this current day, 2020, you know, 2018, 1920, 21, like we weren't talking about this 10 years ago, five, seven years ago, as intensely as you were. Correct. Greta Thunberg and, you know, the Paris Accord and all this stuff happened in the last three to five years. And it's because we are now believing the science. Numbers don't lie. Math doesn't lie. Like, believe the science. Like, and, That's debatable. <laughs> <laughs> Not with but, me. <laughs> but, but, you know, obviously. I mean, look at, I mean, the big short. I mean, the going back to the 08 financial oh crisis, God. right? You know, the, the, the just, I mean, do, do the math on the housing market. Like, you, someone did the math on the it's housing market. It's a great market. movie, by the way. I like the <laughs> it was Christian Bale. It's like, no, the math's right. <laughs> so, I want my fucking money. I want my money back. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so I'm, 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 I have nothing, I have nothing, I have no skin in the game when it comes to climate change. I have no kids. I have no ownership of a vineyard or a winery or a house in Napa Valley. I give zero fucks about anything in the future because I'm leaving nothing behind except a legacy. If I leave a legacy at all. And I just care about wow. wine. I'm not here today because I don't care about wine. I'm here today, and if we don't take action, it's too late. It's too late to continue to talk about this shit. No, 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 and, man. I, it's, it's, so it's way past go time. It's like, we need to start shooting fucking threes and start making them. Like, yeah. if this is a basketball game, we, 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 need, we, we just, it's like, we got to shoot threes and, like, think, and lock them up. And, just, <laughs> and let me just, let me, let me calm down a little bit and just say, we all love old lines, right? So what are you going to do 20 years from now when we have to pull the Cabernet out of the ground? Are you going to start planting a new variety in 20 years and now you're seven years before you get your first taste of that wine and you don't know how good the vineyard is? You want, I want 20-year-old Tempranillo in 2040 and Tariga Nacional and Alianico when the time comes. I don't want to be behind the curve. I nope. want to be ahead of the curve. Nope. This is an opportunity for us to stop thinking 10-day weather forecast and thinking 10, 20, thinking in decades. And there's a, a small group of wineries that have committed to this, uh, International Wineries for Climate Action. There's a Porto Protocol. Everybody, the community, the world stage is 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 
reverberating around this. And uh, 2022 is going to be a big year, I think, for the wine industry and climate action. Um, and I'm excited to you know do a little part of that in Napa Valley Grape Growers and um, and kind of work towards educating and providing service and research and development and measurement uh, in 2022. So just yeah, I just it's. We have to. <laughs> and I want to drink Napa's next Vegas, Cecilia. Come on. That's going to be delicious. I want to drink it with you. Uh, last question. We're going to wrap up. Bottle of wine that just started it all for you. Sean Thackeray Plates. <clears throat> um, at Liberta Den, pre-Aldo. Um, I was with a Hollywood producer and his uh, fiance and my girlfriend at the time, 1999. He was on, he was here filming an Adam Sandler movie. We went to La Bernadette and he waxed so poetic about this guy, Sean Thackeray, a former art gallerist who moved out to Bolinas. Bolinas on the West. coast. Yeah, coast, coast, I love, coast. I love Orion, by the way. Pleat is his name, yeah. but I love Orion. Oh, my God. And that's a, that I live right by that vineyard in St. Helena uh, right now. And um, so he just I need to get some of that shit. That was, that was stories right there. He, he told me the story. That was a, a $17 bottle retail wine mm-hmm. that we drank at La Bernadette. New York City's best fish restaurant, red wine, mix of the set, you know, seven grape varieties for the seven sisters of Pleiades. Um, and that was, that was it, you know, and is it, this, is it my favorite wine today? No, it's not. Um, is it the story behind that wine that hooked me? 100%. Awesome. Dan, the fucking man. Um, thank you for coming in. I, I really appreciate you. I love you, brother, man. You're so sharp. And so you you care. That's what I appreciate about you care. Um, so let's do it again. I'm going to come visit you in Napa, but next time you come to New York, I'm going to have it set up so I can hang out with you afterwards. But everybody, oh my God, until the next time. Oh, stop, back up. Where can they find you? Where can they be a part of what you're about, Dan? Oh, uh, <laughs> just masacon.com. Um, and then the newsletter is on Substack. So if you're familiar with uh, the new publishing platform, Substack, you can find the magazine there. You can find it on the Instagram. Uh, I published the whole, my Masakon Winery Instagram is all the news magazine and uh, the past last year's magazine with Fighting Press. So Instagram, website, Substack, uh, and local restaurants and retail. Awesome. Everybody, until next time, cheers to all the mavericks, the philosophers, the deep thinkers, and all you wine drinkers. Peace. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list. 